The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. I do hope you have your Bible today, because instead of putting many of the scriptures on the screen, uh, I, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to some very important references. Now, today we depart from our series on the tabernacle. We are near to the end of that study in which we will discuss the cloud that led Israel through the wilderness. And the last message is a two-part message, and I didn't want to, to split it up and uh, preach part of it today, then come back in eight or nine weeks and then preach the second part of it. And then it also serves as a sort of an introduction to our next series, which will be on pneumatology, which is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But the purpose of studying the tabernacle is to examine the Old Testament scriptures to discover the worship system of Israel and how it showed in many symbols the redemptive work of Christ before his incarnation in the New Testament. And as I pointed out, if salvation is the same in both Testaments and in these New Testament times that we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, then it must also be true that in the Old Testament they were saved by faith in Christ. And for 1,500 years since the beginning of tabernacle worship, the Old Testament prophets preached that the Messiah would come. Now, I thought it would be appropriate for us to look at this text in John today, in which John the Baptist, who was the last Old Testament prophet, had the most glorious ministry of announcing to Israel that the Messiah had come. Now, John's ministry was at a time when there had been 400 years of silence. There was no word from God. There were no prophets that spoke from uh, the end of Malachi in the Old Testament until John announced that God was here. Now, I know you've just turned to John, but if you turn back a few pages to the end of the Old Testament to uh, Malachi, the last Old Testament book is Malachi, and Malachi's scroll ends with a prophecy of the ministry of John the Baptist. This is what he says in the ending verses, Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now, Malachi ends there, and then the next pages in your Bible are probably blank, or they may include a, some introductory words to the New Testament. But the New Testament actually begins 400 years after Malachi spoke. Now, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus identified Malachi's prophecy with the ministry of John the Baptist. Jesus said, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. Now, I want you to look at John now, the gospel of John chapter 1, 
And John, the apostle, begins his gospel account in verse number 1 of chapter 1. And he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I think most of you are very much aware that who John refers to as the Word is Jesus Christ. He is the living Word of God. He is always existent. He is the great I am. Well, going down to verse number 14, John writes, And the Word was made flesh. This is his incarnation, the incarnation of Jesus. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And the Word dwelled there is really pitched his tent among us. Or we would say he tabernacled with us. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now the next verses are inquiries about the identity of John the Baptist. Jesus is the great I am, while John said that he is the insignificant I am not. These verses speak of his humility in separating himself from the false assumptions that he might be the resurrected Elijah or that he himself was the Messiah. In these verses, John said, I'm the one who came to prepare the way of the Messiah as spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then in verse 26, John continues to answer their inquiries, and he tells them surprisingly that unknown to them, there is one among them who is the Messiah. In verse 26, John answered them, saying, I baptize you with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it. I am not worthy to unloose. And then in verse number 29, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And this is the announcement that Israel had so long waited to hear, but turned out to be what they were most unwilling to hear. John announced Jesus, and he called him the Lamb of God. Now this then is our connection to the Old Testament sacrifices that were made for all these years before Christ came. John said, Jesus is the Lamb. I'd like for us to think about how Christ is symbolized through the offering of the Lamb and the reason that we are so concerned about the life, the death, and the blood of this Lamb. John's description is that Jesus is the Lamb and throughout his ministry, Jesus used the same metaphor to describe himself. That he's not only the Lamb of God, but he is also the Good Shepherd, the Great Shepherd, who cares for his sheep. Now most of us have probably not been around sheep, have not spent much time around sheep. Perhaps you may have been around cattle, or pigs, or chickens, and horses. But there's not many of us who have any real experience with sheep. Now, of course, that's not true in the Middle East, and it wasn't 
true in the time of Jesus, where Jesus was born, sheep were very important to the economy. Throughout the Bible, the scriptures speak of sheep. The Israelites were mostly, in the Old Testament, sheep herders. And of great importance were the lambs that were used for sacrifice. And these were very carefully chosen lambs that were the best and the healthiest of the flock. Now, years ago, when I was studying this passage, I came across a useful illustration. And it was about an old black preacher from the South who spoke of an experience that he had with lambs. One day, he said he had an encounter with a lamb that caused him to quit his job. Uh, This preacher was bivocational, and as I've remarked many times, bivocational pastors have a very soft spot, I have a soft spot for them in my heart, because my dad for so many years pastored the church and also had to work a job because the church couldn't afford to support him. But this preacher was bivocational, and uh, he, he was a preacher, but he also worked at a meat processing plant. And this plant mainly processed cattle and hogs and didn't often process any meat from sheep. But one day, the processing plant received a, a special request for mutton. And the old preacher said that he was used to cattle resisting when they were about to be slaughtered. And he said hogs would do the same. But he said that he took a young lamb to kill, and surprisingly, the lamb didn't fight him. There was no struggle. He said he took the muzzle of the lamb, and he pulled its head back, and he took a sharp knife to cut its throat. And he said the lamb did nothing more than to look at him with eyes full of innocence. And then he said when he cut the lamb's throat, the lamb did something that caused him to quit his job and never go back to the processing plant again. He cut the neck of the lamb, and as its blood flowed out and its life ebbed away, the lamb turned its head and licked his hand, as if to say, it's okay. And the preacher said that so reminded him of the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that he could never go back again to that processing plant. Our daughter, Clarissa, raises sheep. She plans to come out from Kentucky uh, while I'm recovering. But she wondered about the timing of her, of her arrival here because it will be spring and some of her sheep are ready to give birth and she would have new little lambs. What is it about a lamb that is unique and, and it just sort of draws us in and it's quite different from other animals? I think it's because in that white little lamb we think of innocence. And we think of purity, and we think of the helplessness of of the lamb because they have no natural defenses. A lamb needs a shepherd. And certainly when Jesus was born, he was a helpless little lamb, a baby that was born in the manger. But now we find Jesus is grown, and John sees him coming to him, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And as John pointed at Jesus, he wanted people to recognize that the lamb that they had so longed looked for and hoped for had finally arrived. Now, if Jesus arrived in America today, it wouldn't really make much sense for preachers to point at him and say, well, there's, there's the lamb. We don't spend very much time around sheep, and we don't worship in a religious system that sacrifices bulls and goats and sheep. 
And so our background is insufficient to fully understand how important this announcement was when John said, here is the Lamb of God. And so to learn, we must investigate, and this is what we've done each Sunday as we've looked at tabernacle worship. But our study today brings us to the shedding of blood, it brings us to the sacrificial lamb, it brings us to God's plan, and reminds us that that the cross of Christ was not an afterthought. Thousands of sacrifices were made that demonstrated the bloodshed that would take place at the cross. And this tells us that the death of Christ was not an unplanned accident. It was not plan B when Jesus failed to convert as many as he hoped that he would and that they turned against him and they wanted to crucify him. No, all these lambs for the many hundreds of years before this are proof to us and they are evidence that God intended this very thing, that he would sacrifice his son. And indeed, we read in Revelation 13, 8, that Jesus was the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world. And so before there was a sacrificial system, before God put all the stars into space, before the oceans were dug out and filled with water, before the mountains were heaped up, God planned that the Lamb would die on the cross. And this is what I want to discuss with you today, the planning, the shedding of blood, and what that means to you and me. Well, first we look at our Bibles to find the prophecies of the Lamb's blood. This is the predictions of how blood would flow from lambs that were sacrificed. So we turn now to Hebrews chapter 9, and I want you to listen to this scripture in Hebrews uh, as you as you know and have learned from our sermons, Hebrews explains much of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And in this passage, the author is working his way towards proving the superiority of Christ over Old Testament sacrifices. And he writes in verse number 18 of Hebrews 9, Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. And this is to say that the worship of the tabernacle took place with cleansing that was made by blood. And then he goes on to speak of the sprinkling of blood on the tabernacle and on the people. And verse 19, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people. And in verse 22, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Now this recalls the law in Leviticus 17, which says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh atonement for the soul. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. The word remission means deliverance, it means pardon, it means forgiveness, and this is the principle of the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. I don't understand it, I don't know exactly how it works, but the blood of the animal is its soul, it is its life, 
And in the death of the Lamb, there is a symbol, there's a representation of taking away the awfulness, the wickedness, the iniquities of sinful people, and transferring all of that over to the Lamb that is sacrificed. And so in the Bible, when you see that a lamb sheds its blood in sacrifice, when the lamb gives its life, it's for the forgiveness of someone's sin. And it's not by the power of the blood of that animal, because the Bible says the blood of bulls and goats and lambs can never take away sin. It's only a symbol of the lamb who was to come. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. It's God prepared Israel for the day that John the Baptist would say, Look, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Let me give you several examples from the Old Testament of how God went through this process of preparing Israel. You see, as I mentioned last week, there is this scarlet thread, as W.A. Criswell called it, a scarlet thread that runs throughout the scriptures. It runs throughout the Old Testament as God prepared the world for the coming of Jesus. So you need your Bible now as we read about God's preparation. First, there is the lamb that covered shame. We read about this lamb in the book of Genesis, so I'd like you to see it for yourself in your Bible. So we'll turn to Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis 3... We see the first time in the history of the world that an animal died. There was no death when God created the world. Now we all know the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were created innocent. There was no sin. There was no shame because they hadn't yet been tempted. They'd not yet sinned. And then came a trial of obedience. God commanded that they were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan, with his seductive powers, convinced Eve to eat of the tree. Eve took the fruit, and she gave it to her husband, Adam, and he ate. They sinned by eating the forbidden fruit, and immediately their eyes were opened, and they realized they were naked. This produced shame. And that's something that people today don't know very much about, do they? With no clothing, they were ashamed. And in an effort to hide their nakedness, they sewed fig leaves together and covered themselves. But they didn't know that physical nakedness was not the only thing at stake. Because now their souls were laid bare also, and there was no hope of covering them. But with Eve's remarkable talent for sewing, and with her assurance that green was surely her color, they sported around the garden until God came calling. God called out to them, Where are you? And that voice rang in their heads, and they realized that their fig leaves could not cover their sin. Let's look what God did in Genesis 3.21. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Do you catch this? The fig leaves represent man's attempts to cover up his sin. The fig leaves represent human effort that never works. The fig leaves represent all the good things that you think that you can do to please God. Fig leaves are not good enough. 
And so God killed animals. Blood was shed to make the covering. Now the Bible doesn't say this, but the Jewish Talmud says that it was a lamb that God killed. And so it was sheepskin that he used to cover Adam and Eve. With all that we've learned about symbolism, um, I don't see why we couldn't accept that as perhaps the Talmud is right about this. I mean, it would certainly fit in with, with uh, what we read in other scriptures. Why did God do this? Because he was trying to show them the principle. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, let me show you a second lamb that was used to prepare Israel. Uh, there was, next, the lamb that was an acceptable offering. From chapter 3, where God killed animals for the covering, we move now to the story of Cain and Abel. They learned from God's example what they should do. And in the fourth chapter uh, is the story, fourth chapter of Genesis is the story of the disparate offerings of these two sons of Adam. If you look at Genesis 4, verse number 1, and Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock. And of course, that means that he brought the uh, lambs of the sheep, the firstlings of his flock, and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. Abel's offering was a lamb. He took his lamb, he killed it, and he shed its blood. Cain brought a different offering. Cain brought an offering from the soil. Now, if you had been there and had been able to see Cain's offering of the fruits and vegetables that he brought to God, you would have been thoroughly impressed. You would certainly be impressed. You would think, well, we must be at the state fair. This is the very best. Maybe you had come to the farmer's market. Uh, these were the blue ribbon fruits and vegetables, the very best that could be offered. So I suppose that Cain was the president of his FFA chapter. Or perhaps he's really high up in the 4-H club. And he, he's brought the very best of his labors. But on the other hand, if you were to look at the offering that Abel brought, you would see a bloody lamb. And you would look at that lamb and you would say, how awful this is, how nasty that is. Killing a lamb, why would you do that? And your stomach would turn and you would say, yuck, that is just disgusting. I'd rather, disgusting. I'd rather have the fruits and the vegetables. But God looked at both the offerings and he knew what he'd already told them he required. God chose the bloody sacrifice. Why? Because you can't get blood out of a turnip. Why was it not accepted? Why was Cain's offering not accepted? Well, I think there's something in the text that's not written. Maybe we need to read it in the white spaces. The commentators that I follow all agree that sometime before this, God gave specific instructions about the system of sacrifice. And those instructions go back to chapter 3 and are a follow-up to the killing of animals that clothed Adam and Eve. There must be bloodshed. But Cain said, no thank you. I don't want to do it that way. And everyone is at first like 
Cain. They want nothing to do with a bloody religion. They don't want Christianity, or at least not the Christianity that we find in the Bible. Did you know there are denominations that have gone through their hymn books and they have removed the references to the blood? Early in Billy Graham's ministry, he received a a letter from a professor at Cornell University. And the letter applauded him for his preaching skill, but the letter said, don't preach about the blood. It's, it's uncouth. It's insensitive. Modern man, modern people will not receive this message. And Billy Graham, whether you agree with him or not, he did say something right. He said that after he received the letter, he was more determined than ever to include the blood in his preaching. Now, we old-timers that are here, we, we remember messages about the blood, don't we? Here at Berean, we talk about the cross. We talk about animals for sacrifice. We speak much about bloodshed. We speak much about the necessity of the blood of Jesus Christ. But in the years that have gone by, people started going to churches and their children are raised in places where the blood is never mentioned. Nobody talks about it any longer. The blood is offensive to people. It offends PETA. It offends religious liberals. It makes people nervous. They agonize about it. Friends, you need to understand, just as Abel understood, that God said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Well, the word of God goes further as God prepared Israel for John's announcement. Next, there is the lamb that replaced the son. This is one of the most gut-wrenching stories in the Bible. While at the same time, it's one of the most touching pictures of our Heavenly Father offering His own Son to take away our sins. Now, to read about this one, we need to go further into the book of Genesis to chapter 22. And this is the story of Abraham and Isaac and the hike that they took to the top of Mount Moriah. Abraham was on his way up the mountain to offer a sacrifice, and the sacrifice was his son, Isaac. The two began the journey up the mountain, and They were carrying the wood to burn the sacrifice. And as they walked up the mountain, Isaac, who was just a boy, turned to his father Abraham and said, Father, we have wood, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb. When they reached the top of the mountain, they set up the altar and Abraham began to prepare the sacrifice. And as he did, he laid hold on Isaac and bound him And put him on top of the wood. Abraham took a knife from its sheath. And he raised the knife. And he was just ready to plunge the dagger into the heart of Isaac. And just as he did at the very last moment. God stopped him. Look at verse number 11. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said. Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, lay not thine hand upon the lad. Neither do thou anything unto him, for now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. Abraham was obediently ready to kill Isaac and God said, don't do it. Don't do it, Abraham. 
I have prepared a substitute instead. So Abraham looked behind him and there was a ram, there was a sheep, there was a lamb that had its horns caught in the thicket. Do you know why Abraham killed the lamb? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Did you know this about Mount Moriah? This is the same mountain where the temple was built. It's the same place where Solomon offered so many animals that blood flowed everywhere. I mean, I suppose it was like running creeks down the side of the mountain. Creeks and streams of blood that flowed down. And it was on this same mountain that God provided a lamb for Abraham. And that lamb was not coincidentally caught in the thicket. God put it there. Just as one day he would put his son on the cross. And would offer him as our substitute. He replaced our guilt and shame with the blood of his precious son. Why? Because without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. Well, there's one other preparatory lamb to show you this morning. I'm sure you've been waiting for this one. You've been expecting it. It hasn't been just a few Sundays ago that I spoke of this lamb, but I think it is appropriate that we come back to it today because this is the Old Testament's most enduring symbol of the lamb that was to come. Now we go to Exodus chapter 12, and this is the lamb that protected from judgment. This is the story of Israel's bondage in Egypt. In the scriptures, Egypt is a type of sin. The bondage in Egypt typifies our slavery to sin. And you know the story, how that Israel dwelled safely in Egypt. Under Joseph, they came into Egypt. They dwelled safely until there was a new Pharaoh who made them slaves and put taskmasters over them to control them. But in the process of time, God raised Moses to be their deliverer. Pharaoh resisted all the warnings that Moses gave that God said to give him to let the people go. Every warning that God issued was ignored. Egypt had endured nine terrible plagues without releasing Israel from bondage. And finally, God gave one last directive. He accomplished his intended purposes with the nine plagues. And now comes the tenth plague that would ensure that Pharaoh was sufficiently beat down that he would let the people go. Pharaoh's resistance up to this point was God's plan to bring him to this point. God said that the firstborn child of every person in Egypt, and that included the Israelites, the firstborn child of every family would die unless there was a sacrifice. And God gave specific instruction to Moses about which animal that he should use For this sacrifice. It was a lamb. And he told Moses that the people should kill the lamb. And take its blood and put it on the doorposts of their. And size the lintel of their houses. And every house must have this blood of the lamb smeared on it. And if not. Death would come to their house. So this is what God said in Exodus 12 verses 12 and 13. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night. And will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. If you write in your Bible, you might want to underline that word judgment. I will execute judgment. 
And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. You see that? Take good note of it. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And that's the source of the Feast of Passover. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said that Christ is our Passover lamb. He said, for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Now, everyone in the world, and everyone, well, in this room, because you're in the world, is under the threat of God's judgment. And maybe I shouldn't say under the threat. I should say it is the inevitable execution of judgment in a place called hell. But if by faith you have the blood of the Lamb on your heart, you're protected from this judgment. Now I want you to keep that thought in your mind about Passover because at the end of the message I'm going to come back to it and make an application. So these four examples, and there are many more recorded because God was preparing Israel for the announcement of John the Baptist. I wish today I had time to take you through Isaiah chapter 53. That might have been time better spent. I don't know. But I'll trust that the Lord has used what we've said thus far. Israel was conditioned by the offering of lambs to expect the time when a final offering would be made. And then they would no longer need to cut the throat of an innocent lamb. That just might turn its head And licked the hand as its blood flowed out. All the bulls and goats and sheep and lambs were to condition Israel for the time that Jesus would come. Whenever the blood of their sacrifices were shed, they, the people, were conditioned to think about forgiveness of sins. Aren't you glad that we don't have to do this? I'm so glad. Jesus came. The the Lamb of God came to take away the sins of the world that was dying and on its way to hell. And John said, Behold the Lamb. And this was God's final Lamb as an offering for sin. The prophecies were fulfilled when Jesus was nailed to the cross. And they were fulfilled when his blood is the blood that stained the wooden cross. Secondly, I'd like to observe the power of the Lamb's blood. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Now, we probably need that song today more than ever. And I wonder, what is it, these these folks that have taken the blood out of their hymn books, what do they sing has wonder-working power? What is it? What, What is it that takes away their sin? Well, let's return to the book of Hebrews just momentarily and I've read this too many times in our study of sacrifices. It must be repeated so we're never confused about the difference between the lamb of of God's blood, that is the blood of Jesus, and the blood of the lambs in the Old Testament. I just quoted it a moment ago, partially, Hebrews 10.4, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. You can underline that in your Bible. It is not possible. It is impossible For the blood of animals to take away sin. There was a literal river of blood that flowed out of Jerusalem because of animal sacrifices. Not one of them, or thousands of them, heaped together in a pile, 
could take away one sin. Now today, there are no animal sacrifices among the Jews because they don't have a temple. And the temple is the place where sacrifices were supposed to be made. So they are without blood if they don't believe in Jesus Christ. And they're guilty in their sins as all nations and people of the world are without Christ. Let me show you three aspects of the power of Christ's blood. The blood of animals can't do this. But Christ's blood can. First is cleansing power. We find this in 1 John 1, 7. I'll read it quickly. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. We're all born with a sin problem. The problem is a stain. It's a horrible blemish that we spend all of our lives trying to get rid of. Some try to live a good life. And they think that will remove the stain. Some give money to charities or stop along the highway and hand money out the window to a man holding a sign. They give money to the homeless and they think, well, maybe this will help remove the stain. There are some who simply ignore it as if the stain is not there. But it is. As surely as God put a mark on Cain, it's there. We are all guilty, we are all dirty, and there's only one thing that can cleanse us from all sin, and that is the blood of Christ. If you ask me, well, how, how does that work? How, 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 does this, how is it that the blood cleanses us from sin? And I'll tell you, I don't know. I know about justice. I know about what God requires. I know about faith. But how God uses those requirements in the spiritual realm to take away sin, I can't tell you. But I believe it's true. I believe it's true because God said it's true. It is true. God said he will take away our sins forever because Christ shed his blood. And I would never want you to to leave here with the impression that you have a stain that's too deep. That you can't get rid of it. That there is nothing that can wash it away. Some say, well, I've done too many bad things, preacher. You don't know what I've done. There's no possibility of forgiveness. The Bible does not say that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from some sins. And it doesn't say it cleanses us from insignificant sins or comparatively little sins that people say they commit. No, the blood of Christ cleanses from all, A-double-L, all sins. So you could never do anything too bad. That Christ's blood can't wash it away. Christ's blood has more power to set you free from sin than sin has to keep you chained. So that's how much power is in the blood. God says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Here's the second aspect of the power of the blood. Communing power. What do I mean? Well, the blood of Jesus has the power to draw you close to God. This is what communing means. You can draw close in intimacy through the blood of Christ. Hebrew, or rather Ephesians says this, Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. The Bible teaches that before we received Christ, we were separated from God because of our sins. But when the Holy Spirit comes and he applies the blood of Jesus to your heart, then you are brought near to God. 
Some of you may need to be honest with yourselves. You lack intimacy with God, and it seems to you as if God is somewhere out there on the backside of the universe. You experience separation from God's fellowship, and the only way that you can be brought near is by the blood of Jesus. Sin is a barrier between you and God. I want you to picture for just a moment the Holy of Holies that we've studied in the tabernacle. Picture that veil that hung from the ceiling to the floor that separated the two compartments in the tabernacle. The veil was woven so tightly that it said that a team of horses pulling in opposite directions could not pull it apart. This curtain separated the people from God's presence. Only on one day of the year could the high priest go alone behind this curtain to enter the presence of God. But do you know what happened when Jesus was crucified? He was not on Mount Moriah. He was not at the temple. And yet the Bible says the veil in the temple at the top of Mount Moriah was torn from the top to the bottom. No team of horses could do it. No man could have done it. Only the hand of God could tear it. And when Jesus died, he provided the way that all could have access to the Father. It was the power of the cross. It was the power of his death. It was the power of bloodshed that tore the curtain in two. So God removed the barrier when the blood of Jesus was shed. And that barrier between you and God, that barrier that it is between your heart and God, that barrier falls, it's torn in two, it's gone, it crumbles. When you have the blood of Jesus, it gives you communion with God. Then here's the third aspect of the power of the blood. It is conquering power. It has conquering power. Revelation twelve eleven, And they overcame him, that is Satan. They overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Now you see this? You overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God. Because his blood conquers all the powers of hell. When you become a Christian, don't be fooled to think that the devil is done with you. He never stops. He is relentless. And I know that you know this because some of you have been beaten black and blue by the Satan, by the devil. The Bible says the Lord never slumbers or sleeps. Satan doesn't need an alarm clock either. He's not far behind. Satan always accuses. He always tempts. He always tries to destroy. He can make your life miserable, but only if you let him. How do you overcome him? By the blood of the Lamb. How do you overcome him? Well, you know there are weapons, the Bible says, that you can use. I'm not going to uh, take off from uh, on Ephesians 6 right now, but I can say you can overcome the devil by praise. The devil hates praise. He's wounded by praises. You can overcome him by prayer. Call on God when the devil harasses you. James said, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But let me tell you the best way. If you want to overcome Satan, know that it is by the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb finally conquers him. And so when the devil comes, you say, get thee behind me, Satan. I'm covered by the blood of Jesus. Stay away, Satan. I have the blood of the Lamb upon my heart. 
What does that mean to you and me? The Old Testament lambs, lambs dying. What does that mean to modern Christians who know nothing about lambs? Well, I want you to listen closely as I make the application of today's sermon. I think everyone needs to hear, so pay attention. If the blood of the lamb is not applied to your heart by the Holy Spirit, you are under the imminent judgment of God. You must receive the blood upon your heart so that when God looks at you, he will see the blood and he will say, innocent. You are innocent. There is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Now let's push that rewind button for just a minute. I ask you to keep the thought of Passover in your mind because here comes our important application. Let's go back in our imagination to the palace of Pharaoh in Egypt. Pharaoh has a firstborn son. Pharaoh's son comes in to talk with his dad and he says, Dad, have you heard what that preacher is saying? Have you heard about this lamb that must be killed? And Pharaoh said, yes, son, I I heard it, I heard about it, but I don't believe it. But dad, don't you think we ought to be safe? Don't you think we ought to just kill that lamb just in case? And Pharaoh says, well, listen, son, we have the smartest, most highly educated priests in the civilized world. And they say that this blood stuff is unimportant. We don't need the blood. And so he says, son, here's what I'll do. If you are afraid, then I will surround you with the best of my guards. If you want peace of mind, I'll let them stand guard while you sleep tonight. But that night, there is a gasp and a scream, and the firstborn son died. Pharaoh dashed into the room to see that his son was dead. Some of you might say, oh, well, I... I, I'm more enlightened than that. I don't need your stories. I don't need the blood. And if it's what you think, you'll suffer the same fate. You'll fall under the judgment of God. Now we go to another location. We go into the camp of the Israelites. And, of course, there are many indications, and we know that some of them did not believe. And so there is a man there who begins to rationalize about what he's been told. And he says, yes, you know, I've heard what Moses said, but there's another way. There's a better way to do this. Sure, we can have a lamb, but we don't need to kill the lamb. It's not the blood that's important. So I'm going to take a living lamb, and I will tie it to the doorpost. And surely God will see the sincerity of my heart. I'll take some beautiful words of poetry, and I'll nail them to the side of the door. God loves poetry. I'll take jewels, I'll put a string of pearls and stones, precious stones on the door. They're so much more beautiful than blood. And that night there's a gasp and a scream and the firstborn son died. And I say this because there are some who say, no, we don't need the blood of Jesus. Now perhaps there isn't anyone in this congregation, but maybe someone will listen someday to this recording and they'll say, I believe in Jesus, but I do not believe that Jesus had to die. Jesus was a good teacher, and Jesus was a good man, and all I really need to do is to imitate his life. We'll be okay if we just be good people. We'll be okay if we just treat our neighbors well, like Jesus did. But this stuff about blood and believing in blood, it's not really all that important. And if that's your belief, you too will suffer the judgment of God in hell. Now go to me, go with me to another house. 
The son says, Dad, did you hear what Moses said? And the dad says, yes, son. And we're going to do just what Moses said. And they took a little lamb, a lamb that was one year old in the prime of its life. And Jesus was 33 years old in the prime of his life. They took a lamb that had no blemishes. And Jesus had not a single sin. And they took the lamb and they killed it and they smeared its blood on the doorpost and the lintel of the door. They did exactly as God commanded and then they went through the door. They went under the blood and they went inside the house and they ate the lamb. Do you hear me? They ingested the lamb and so the lamb became a part of them. And now the dad says to his son, Son, you can go to bed. You don't need to be afraid to go to sleep because everything will be all right. But dad, are you sure? Did we we do it? Are are you sure? Yes, son, everything's fine. Don't be afraid. We did it just as Moses said. And that night there was a gasp and there was a scream. But not in this house. Because the death angel came and he passed over them. They were safe under the blood. God said, when I see the blood, judgment will not fall on you. So what do you need to do? Well, if you haven't done it, you need to receive Christ into your heart, just the way that they receive the lamb for protection. You need to say, Jesus, I trust you. I trust what you did to save me. I trust your blood. And when you walk under the blood, the blood will make you safe. Now, one of two things will happen when you exit the doors of this church today. You will walk out safe under the blood, or you will walk out guilty upon the blood. Did you know the Bible says this? If if you don't believe in Jesus after a message like today, the Bible says that your punishment will be far worse. It says that you trample, that you stomp, the blood of Christ under your feet. And you say, does it say that? It does. Hebrews 10. If you're still there, Hebrews 10, verse 29. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that has said, Vengeance belongeth to me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. John said, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. I think everyone here needs to hear this. Everyone in this room, you may say, It's okay. Because I believe in the blood of the Lamb. But the next question is that I'll leave you with. I'll leave you with this. Does your life show that you entered under the blood? I want you to very carefully consider, did it happen? Did it really happen? Because the blood of the Lamb has the power to change lives. I believe that the Christ who was slain on the cross has the power to change lives today. For he changed me completely. A new life is mine. And this is why by the cross I will stay. I believe in a hill called Mount Calvary. I believe whatever the cost. 
And when time has surrendered and earth is no more, I'll still cling to the old rugged cross. Blessed be God for the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we just ask, Lord, that people have seen the Lamb today. I pray for anyone here who's heard this and might still be skeptical about what is said, not sure if these things are true, not true. And as I prayed earlier, I have no power in me to convince anyone of the truth of anything that I've said. That comes by your power. Only the Holy Spirit can open blinded eyes to realize that this is what they need to do. And this is the truth of your word. And unless they believe this, a terrible eternity waits for them. And then, Lord, I pray for those Christians here today who say, oh, I've heard all this about the blood. I, I do believe it. And they've gone through their lives and, and really don't live a life and show every day that this is truly what they believe. We do understand that your blood has the power to change us from what we are were to make us new people, to make us followers of you, obedient followers of you. And Lord, I pray that everyone here who claims to be a Christian may examine their own lives and say, I truly am a child of God. I truly am a child of God. And I demonstrate that I know him as Savior. Help us to have that conviction today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.